This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It's that time of year again. The justices uh, started their winter recess. Their next regularly scheduled conference is not until February 19th, and they don't resume arguments again until February 22nd. But because of the pandemic, the recess probably does not involve the same kind of glamorous travel that it normally does. Uh, At least according to the website, no one appears to be taking advantage this year of the U.S. Supreme Court Jurists in Residence program at the University of Hawaii Law School. Um, The justices, as far as we know, are probably at home just like the rest of us. But it's a good time to take a look back at the court's January argument session and a look ahead at the February session and to talk a little bit about some of the other goings-ons or not goings-on at the court. Um, Joining me to do all that is Robert Barnes, who covers the Supreme Court for the Washington Post. Bob, welcome. Thanks. Good to see you, Amy. Good to uh, and see you since we never see each other anymore, right? I know. It's been, you know, we're, we're working on a year here now, which is kind of hard to believe. It's crazy. Uh, the, the court shut down after the February argument session, which ended at the beginning of March. So I want to start with one of the cases in the January sitting, and I'm actually going to let the Chief Justice, we have a really special guest, at least by audio, <laughs> for just a moment, let the Chief Justice introduce it for us. We will hear argument this morning, case 19968, Uzabionum v. Prochevsky. You think he practiced the name a couple of times to introduce it? Absolutely. Um, So this was a religious speech case, and the plaintiff was represented by the conservative-leaning Alliance Defending Freedom, but the issue is one in which groups from both ends of the ideological spectrum are interested. There were amici on both sides, you know, with the ACLU supporting the Alliance Defending Freedom in this case. Yeah, you you know, usually sides that are uh, opposed to each other came together on this one. It's a really interesting case, uh, I think, and it sort of gets to the heart in in some ways of what a lawsuit is supposed to be, uh, or this kind of lawsuit. Um, You know, as the justices sort of put it, is, is it to stop um, behavior that you think is violating uh, someone's constitutional rights? Or is it more than that? Does the plaintiff have a right to be told, you know, you were right and the other side was wrong? And uh, a lot of the discussion was about, you know, is that something that, uh, you know, a federal uh, civil rights lawsuit is really about? Uh, this, law, this case got a lot of attention for another reason. Justice Elena Kagan, in the oral argument, cited a lawsuit involving Taylor Swift as an example of exactly what you're talking about. Can you explain? You wrote about it in your coverage of the case. I did, and I, and I just like to say I was a little more restrained than some of my colleagues because I think I, I kept Taylor Swift until at least the second or the third <laughs> paragraph in this uh, story instead of just like going with it right off the bat. Um, and, uh, you know, Justice Kagan used Taylor Swift uh, as a way to talk about sort of what are nominal damage, damages. And she said, you know, it was the most 
famous case she could recall in recent times, and it was about uh, a, a radio disc jockey who Taylor Swift said had groped her uh, at an appearance, and she sued, and she sued only for a dollar. Um, and she clearly, uh, as Justice Kagan said, wanted to make the point. She, just, Justice Kagan said, you know, clearly it's worth more than a dollar uh, to be sort of sexually assaulted or harassed like that, but that this was her way of uh, showing that it was wrong and making the point that it was wrong and, and making uh, this uh, disc jockey sort of pay for what he had done. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of, uh, Justice Kagan does this a lot, and it, it reminded me of times when she's talked about how she writes opinions and how she looks for things, and she says it goes back to teaching, uh, being a law professor, and where she had this sort of audience of smart and interested people who didn't understand the law. They were trying to learn the law. And so she was always looking for some sort of an example that would make them uh, say, oh, I get it now. And uh, I think that's what she was doing with that Taylor Swift example was sort of uh, giving something so that people could say, oh, I, I know what you're talking about when you say nominal damages. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, because you wrote that it seemed to resonate with her colleagues, but it seemed like the case probably, you know, got even more attention because of her citation of Taylor Swift. And it, it did seem maybe that she was trying to make the case more accessible, not just to her colleagues, but to the public at large. I think you're right. I think that, you know, uh, some of the justices, have, they talk about their job uh, you know, some say it's to, you know, educate lawyers and, uh, and lower courts about the law. And, and some, uh, like Justice Kagan, like the Chief Justice, have been very explicit about talking that they, uh, about how they want their opinions to be accessible to the public uh, at large. And um, so I think that that's exactly what she was doing there. So the other case I want to talk about from the January sitting uh, was a case called BP versus Mayor and City Council of Baltimore. It's a case. Oh God! At first blush, it sounds really <laughs> interesting, climate change, um, but it was pretty technical. It was so technical, and uh, you know, I I read a lot about that case, and I prepared for that case, and. I took so many notes during that long uh, oral argument. And then at the end, I thought, who in the world is going to care about this uh, except uh, lawyers and lawyers who are very interested in this? And my job is not to write for lawyers. Uh, it's to write for a general readership. As you say, the, the issue is going to be very important. And one day there's going to be a huge climate change lawsuit that I think the Supreme Court will have to weigh in on. Um, but this one wasn't quite it. It was a, a, a stepping stone. Um, and I do think it, you know, obviously the issue is important, whether or not these cases are heard in state courts, which seem would be seem to be more favorable to the local governments and the state governments who are suing these uh, multinational companies, or whether they should be in federal court. 
which uh, the corporations think uh, are sort of more hospitable to their defenses. So it's a big deal. Um, but what the court is actually going to decide is sort of several steps away from that. Uh, it's just starting the process in a way. And, you know, even worse, only eight justices heard the case. Uh, and so if they split, you would think that they would want to decide this as narrowly, you know, they want to come up with as narrow a ruling as they can that might attract uh, a, a majority. And so uh, I'm a little pessimistic uh, about uh, having to write about this case again. You noted in your coverage, you know, Justice Brett Kavanaugh was sort of probing the reasons why the, you know, the plaintiffs would want to keep the case in state court. But then he said, of course, you know, state court judges are very good, especially the Maryland <laughs> state court judges. <laughs> Yeah, and he, he didn't mention that his mother was a Maryland state court judge. So I think uh, he would have been, uh, he would have heard about it if he had uh, said anything that might have disparaged the court uh, system in Maryland. You know, he also talked about, is this case really, uh, I, I'm sorry, in, uh, in the other case, he talked about, you know, is this really about lawyers' fees? Um, and uh, I, I thought that was sort of an interesting thing when in fact, you know, lawyers fees are really important in these constitutional uh, cases. And I thought he said it in, in sort of a disparaging way, um, but uh, the other side said, you know, well, even if it is about lawyers fees, that's a really important part of bringing uh, constitutional challenges. Right, right. So this, the, the January session, by the time the justices were finished, it was the fifth session that they had done by telephone. And, you know, when they're doing it by telephone, they take turns. They start with the chief justice. They go all the way down now through Justice Barrett. Everybody mm -hmm. takes turns. They get their, you know, specific amount of time. Um, we interviewed Lyle Denniston after the May session and Lyle was pretty outspoken about how much he disliked the oral argument format. And at the time, I thought, you know, well, they're, they're doing the best they can, given, given the difficult situation. Um, I'm starting to come over to Lyle's side. Mm -hmm. uh, but what do you, what do you think about the, the format these days? Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's tough on reporters, which I know isn't their first concern. Um, <laughs> or their 48. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was a political reporter, everyone would always talk about how they hated horse race, you know, political reporting. But then the first question anyone ever asked me when they found out what I did was, who's going to win this election? Right. Um, it's a little bit the same with being a, a Supreme Court reporter after one of these. Everyone wants to know who's going to win this case. Um, I think this format makes it much harder uh, to figure that out. Uh, I, you're, you're a better uh, uh, analyst than I am, but I find, it, um, I find it very hard when the, when the justices are, have very clearly decided, you know, I'm going to ask tough questions of both sides because otherwise it doesn't look fair um, to know you know, which one is really important to them and which one they're just playing sort of devil's advocate. 
in. And so I think it makes it much harder um, to sort of predict the outcome of a case. Uh, and before, you know, the justices would be very tough on the side that they thought that they didn't agree with. And so you got, you know, you could sort of count to five uh, more easily that way. This, this way is much tougher. It also goes on for a very long time. Yes. Um, and this idea that, you know, it's sort of balanced if, for instance, the government comes in on the uh, on behalf of one side. I think that it's very hard for the court to really balance that time out and and make it look uh, equal. And so, um, I, I, you know, I find it hard for as a reporter. You know, I also sometimes question the. Uh, importance or uh, how meaningful it is to readers for us to cover these. You know, on the one hand, it is the only chance we get to hear the justices discuss a case. On the other hand, you know, if they're asking questions of both sides, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about the, um, the outcome of the case. I feel in a way it's sort of good practice for us as reporters to write about, to know how to write about the case when it's actually decided. Um, but it makes me wonder if readers are going to get a whole lot out of that coverage. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, so the, the, as I mentioned at the top of the, the podcast, the justices are back on February 22nd. And had there been a second Trump administration, the February argument session, I think would be very interesting. There'd be two cases at the beginning involving uh, funding for the border wall and the remain in Mexico policy. But now it's like, it's not clear that those cases are gonna make it to argument. Yeah, uh, and with the change of administration comes some big changes in that case. The uh, the Biden administration has already pulled the plug on uh, border funding and said it's not going to do any more. Um, and uh, I would imagine that uh, changes uh, are coming in immigration uh, policy. You know, I think the court doesn't particularly want to decide some of these cases that it doesn't have to. It's sort of a good out for them if um, if it looks like there's going to be uh, some reason not to do it. Uh, you saw this week that they got rid of the emoluments uh, cases. I mean, in that case, everyone had, all sides had agreed that they were moot with Trump leaving office. I think we're gonna see a lot more of those uh, cases in which uh, you sort of get what's the point uh, in doing this. Uh, even though I think that they, they both raise really interesting and important issues. And so the rest of the term, you know, is kind of stocked with interesting, but, you know, shall we say lower profile cases? Potty, you know, like the potty mouthed uh, cheerleader? I mean, I actually think it's really interesting, but, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people tuning into live audio. Yeah. There are, you know, the cheerleaders will be in school. 
Um, do you think that that is, you know, we saw something similar, I feel like, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's first term mm-hmm. on the court. I mean, do you think mm-hmm. it's a deliberate effort? They, you know, they're trying to keep a low profile between, you know, the confirmation hearings and the, you know, the election? I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, and also confirmations are like the thing that really brings the Supreme Supreme Court back in front of the public uh, in a lot of ways and raises all of these questions about sort of what is the Supreme Court and is it partisan? Is it independent? You know, how can we think of it as an independent body if, you know, the political, if the justices are confirmed on party line votes? Uh, and so I think that the court likes to put some time between those kinds of discussions about the court and some of these big controversial issues that we all uh, focus on. And uh, you're right. I mean, I've covered the court basically um, since uh, Justice Alito's first full term. And so in his sort of partial term, uh, the court seemed to sort of take it easy a little bit. Uh, in his next, in the next term, his first full term on the court, that was the one in which Justice Breyer said, you know, never has so few changed so much in such a short period of time. I'm paraphrasing because I can never remember his exact quote there. But right, because it's you not get the in the idea. opinion. It's not right. <laughs> um, but so I think that seems to be the trend that we see, don't you? Right. That, uh, I mean, that's pretty much what happened with Justice Kavanaugh. Exactly. It's the next year that all of these big uh, issues come up. Uh, and so I, I would expect some of that to happen. Well, speaking of, um, you know, the, the court started the recess you know, without acting on some of these big petitions that we're still waiting on, um, you know, the Mississippi abortion, the Pennsylvania election, you know, do we think that they, I mean, I mean who knows what's going on? Some of them somewhat, there could be dissents from the denial of review that they are just like kicking the can down the road. Yeah. You know, it's always so hard, uh, isn't it? To, know exactly because you know just when we think we've figured it out that they've been holding on to this case for a really long time and we think that's because someone's writing uh something uh then they just sort of take it with no explanation right um and uh but you know it, it make it would cert- it certainly makes sense to me that they don't want to take a huge abortion case and sort of rush it before uh, this term when abortion played such a huge uh, role in uh, Justice Barrett's confirmation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they do want to put some time between that. You know, I can't quite figure out why they're uh, waiting on some of these other uh, cases and these emergency uh, applications, you know. Those seem like they could have been settled by now, and I I was certainly expecting some of that uh, before they left on, you know, you you were nicer. I've heard it called their long winter's nap, Um, but, you know, when they take a few weeks off just after coming back from a few weeks off, um, but... uh, 
you know, I was expecting something then. So I, I, I'm a little hard pressed to figure out why they didn't do take care of some of these things uh, before they left. I mean, the most obvious one being Trump versus Vance, the Manhattan grand jury subpoena. Like I kept feeling like there were sort of markers, you know, that I, I can understand that they might not want to act too soon and have it seem while there was election litigation outstanding that they were perhaps prejudging. Uh -huh. But you know, I was like, okay, well, January 6th, that's come and gone. The, the, now the inauguration has come and gone. Like, yeah, what are I, they I, waiting for? I find it puzzling too. And, and, you know, that application is like all based on Trump being president. Yes. I mean, it is all about uh, uh, sort of can he get this thing held off uh, for later until he's no longer president. And it seemed to me... Uh, there was a way to do that right now. I mean, do they expect Vance to go back to the lower court now and just say he's no longer president? Uh, you know, give us the records. I don't know. Um, it, it would seem like they couldn't until the Supreme Court acts. I want to take a step back now. You've been covering, as you said, the Supreme Court since Justice Alito's first full term on the court. So almost the entire Roberts court. Yeah. And in you know the past year, we've had a stretch of historic cases. You know, we had abortion, LGBTQ rights, we had DACA, presidential immunity, Justice Ginsburg passed away. We had a confirmation, a very rapid confirmation. We had the pandemic um, and all of the, the pandemic docket, both election mm -hmm. and, you know, people wanting to go to worship services and 13 federal executions. Was this sort of the most hectic stretch in, in your coverage of the court? You know, I think it, uh, I think it might be. I mean, there are always big cases at the end of the term. The end of every term is sort of this frantic uh, rush to um, sort of make sure you're ready to be able to write things and, you know, in our new media environment to write them as soon as they happen. Um, but this uh, has been truly extraordinary. And it's partly because of, of what you uh, mentioned. It's not just the merit cases that come rolling out. It's all of these emergency applications uh, before the court. I, I mean, we've really never seen anything like this. And, uh, you know, never before have I, you know, had to try to call the court and like uh, beg for some guidance on whether I could have dinner or not, or, you know, whether <laughs> I should just be sitting and uh, waiting for something to happen. And again, you know, all happening, you know, while all of us are at home uh, staring at our email boxes and, waiting to receive some sort of notification of what's uh, coming down. It's, it's been really an extraordinary period of having to write things quickly and, and deal with things late at night. Um, a lot of the election cases were like that. And of course, you know, uh, we were all, you know, trying to figure out if we could cook a turkey and you know, cover this really important decision about the uh, COVID uh, restrictions on religious uh, communities in New York, which, you know, the what it came down at midnight, uh, yes. just on Thanksgiving Eve. And then the next day, you know, we all 
wanted to really look more at that at those opinions and and write about them. So it you know, yes, it's been an extraordinary period and even more extraordinary uh, for the fact that none of us are at the court uh, and none of us are actually seeing uh, the justices do anything. Last question, uh, and then we'll let you go. Marsha Coyle recently had a post at Constitution Daily with the title, What Will Justice Breyer Do? Uh, about the possibility that Justice Breyer will decide to step down now that there is, at least for the next two years, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. Uh, predictions? Well, um, you know, I always think of when I think about uh, Supreme Court openings, I think of something the wise Walter Dellinger uh, told me, which was, uh, for the most part, God decides when there's a Supreme Court opening. Hmm. Um, good one. And uh, so I sort of keep that in mind as much as we sort of strategize and think about the sort of political wins and uh, you know, I think for the most part, justices want to stay as long as they can. They like their jobs, you know, Justice Souter perhaps being the one uh, exception that proves the rule. But, uh, but you know, they want to stay as long as they can, as long as they feel like they're doing it right. Um, and that, all of that said, I think that uh, Justice Ginsburg's example would uh, uh, is going to weigh upon him uh, the idea that her seat went to someone who's has a very, very different uh, ideological outlook and has really changed, and I think will really change the court. I think that that will uh, weigh on him. And so, you know, if I had, to, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I, I would uh, sort of expect him to leave the court while the Democrats uh, have this advantage. All right. Well, do I get to ask you what you think? Uh, sure, you can absolutely <laughs> ask, and I will say I, I, I think that's probably right for all of for exactly the same reasons. You know, he's obviously seems to be in good health, enjoys being a justice, but you know, it was very cognizant of how things happened with Justice Ginsburg probably does not want to see that the situation replay. Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, I think that's a, a big uh, factor in this. Yeah. Um, and he has, I mean, he has a, I think, you know, he so enjoys being a justice and it has opened a lot of doors outside of the court. But on the other hand, you know, Hett would have a pretty full life. Uh, you yeah. Know, it's his yeah. architect, especially once the pandemic's over, he can, go do his architecture judging and give speeches in French and all yeah, of this. Yeah, but, I, I, but you know, things. on the other hand, look at the how long he's been on the court and it is just now that he's becoming the senior uh, member of the liberal side, uh, you know, with the, there aren't a whole lot of perks that go along with that, but there are a couple, um, but you know, he, he had to like be the junior justice for what, 11 years? 11 years. And yeah. now he finally gets to be sort of the senior member of the liberal side. And like, you know, the minute the election was, uh, outcomes were clear, the group started on, it's time for him to go. <laughs> so yeah. I, I do feel for him. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Bob Barnes, thank you very much. This was fun. Thanks. It was fun to talk to you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.